Uh, when, we look to, uh, when we look to this particular chapter, what we are visiting with is Paul's uh, plan to conclude his ministry with the church that is in Rome, but not to conclude it for all time, because we know that the church uh, itself uh, will be caught up with Christ. We know that the church itself will prevail in Christ and will ultimately, uh, as they uh, belong to his kingdom with reference to the salvation granted to them by Christ, they will ultimately be joined to his kingdom visibly. So Paul is not saying a final goodbye to them, but what he is realizing is that the scope of his ministry and the intimacy of his ministry toward them is concluding in certain ways, although he does long to be with them. So you have Paul's plans uh, for ministry are intentional plans because he does want to be with the church of Rome. He's writing to them uh, through dictation to Tertius. He's writing to them and they are remote from him, but he has this intimacy in many of the things that he has heard them persevere in related to the truth. And the last time we were together, we talked about how Romans 15 is a reminder. It's a reminder from Paul the Apostle, Romans in total. It's a reminder from Paul the Apostle about the things that he wanted to instruct them in that they already knew. And so the thing about it is it's not that they're hearing things for the first time when we come to Romans. It's that Paul is reminding them in Romans of the things that they've heard and how those things have been an encouragement to him. And so here he turns to the foundation that they have in Christ and he wants to be encouraged by them as he seeks to minister in the region surrounding them. And so Paul longed still to be with the Gentiles. He wanted to be with them. He wanted to be among them. He wanted to make his way to those Christians who were as far as Spain, which at this time in the particular known world, that would be considered the edge of the empire, so to speak. So it would be the edge as far west as one would go in the sense in which Paul's ministry is entrusted to him to reach the known world at that time. And so he wanted to go as far west from his location to be with the believers who were there and also to minister to them and to be ministered to. He longed for the Christians. Paul longed for the Christians. And that is a staple of our hope, of our sanctification. It is a staple of our salvation. That he had longed to be with those who were compassionate toward him and who had a love for Christ. He wanted to help them, but he wanted them to help him get to them. And so we'll see that even as we kind of rapidly work our way through this text. Because this chapter and the next chapter is simply just rapid verses that... Uh, in which the final greetings are laid out before us. And they are they certainly have a purpose and are certainly important. Uh, but less than the other chapters where we went to very detailed exposition and explanation, these are, in a sense, Paul, are, he's wrapping things up. And he's concluding the matters that are at hand in order so that he can execute the plan that God has for him in ministry. But he wants to be helped by them, by the Christians, and he wants to help them when he arrives to them. So you see this compassion that he has. And it's all in step with the, the priority and scope of his ministry in ministering to the Jews if they are present. But particularly, he's concerned with the Gentiles. <coughs> Excuse me. If we look at verse uh, 20, and thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. 
And then it says in 21, but as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see and they who have not heard shall understand. In longing to be with them, Paul was not necessarily hoping to encroach on others. So he didn't want to encroach on true fellowship and true ministry that took place among the saints. He was not looking to, as an apostle, encroach on uh, in an area where Christ had already been named. He did want to experience the fellowship, the gifts of the spirit that were evident in those areas. But he did not want to, as a first apostle, come in and say, this has not been done. This has not been taught. Therefore, I have to have a certain beginning and inceptive experience to launch something that's never been done before. That was not Paul's heart. And he's saying so when he says, I want to come and visit you and I want to, I want to come and see you. In fact, it was this. And you have to tie what is said here in verse uh, 20 and 21. You have to tie it to the prophecy in Isaiah 52. And in that prophecy in Isaiah 52, it was that these regions where Paul wanted to go, they had been closed off to the proclamation of Christ among them by wicked rulers. But yet the light of the gospel shined very brightly, shone very brightly in darkness in those regions. And so Paul is saying, I don't want to encroach where Christ had not been named. But listen, this is a fulfillment of prophecy that I'm writing to a region I've, I've never been. And the gospel has arrived there. Now, I believe that you have uh, Peter's ministry is an extension in Rome. And I believe that that is certainly where the influence of the gospel and the church establishment has taken place. But even in that sense, it is a place that is essentially closed off to true biblical Christian ministry. Where am I getting that from? It's the Roman Empire. And Rome is hostile to believers. You have the peace of Rome. The Pax Romana is somewhat given way to a syncretism, a sense in which as long as you have all the gods except Jesus, you're fine. And so Paul is saying in that sense, these regions have been previously closed off, even in the ancient times. And yet he's saying the gospel has prevailed. I don't want to come as though that's not the case. Well, why? Because I'm considering you who are in Rome as my brothers and sisters in Christ. So he's saying, I'm not coming to unbelievers. I'm coming to believers. And you'll see that in the greetings in chapter 16 when we look to chapter 16 the next time we're together. But here Paul recognizes that there was an established church and a presence of believers among the saints in the region to whom he's writing. He recognizes that. So then Paul, the apostle, was still hoping to see the saints there one day. So you see that there's much interfacing, much relationship between Paul as an apostle and the church that is established. And in this sense, it's not that he's going there like he would to Ephesus, uh, like he would uh, in other churches such as Galatia. Uh, But in this sense, whereas in Corinth, he's correcting things that they're doing wrongly. Here he's saying, I want to benefit from what you're doing well. It was the same thing in Thessalonica. And so we see that Paul wants to very much be in step with the fellowship that they enjoy with one another and the compassion and love that they have for one another. So Paul was hoping to see them one day. And that's a simple thought. But if you think about it, isn't that the thought of the Christian, that the Christian wants to be with the saints? The Christian longs not only to be with the Christians in his company, but he wants to be with the Christians wherever they may be found. And so that is the heart's desire, because 
in them, the Christian sees Christ in them. And he also sees the fellowship they have in Christ and that we will all day one. We will all one day be in Christ for eternity and with him. And so you see that you see that Paul was hoping to see the saints one day. He says in verse 22, for this reason. So you tie the prophecy to what I said concerning Isaiah 52. For this reason, I have often been prevented from coming to you. And so when I read this. I knew I had to look a little deeper. I remember studying this. I knew I had to look a little deeper because I'm going, wait, why would he say what he says in verse 20? And then is there a negative component to verse 21? And it's exactly as I said, that these regions through wicked rulers and kings, it had been closed off to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul is saying in verse uh, 22, I've been prevented from coming to you. I couldn't make it to you at times. And Paul is essentially saying, even if we look at this grammatically, that Paul's actions, his coming to them in verse 22, was prevented by forces outside of himself. What Paul is referring to is then the annals of spiritual warfare that prohibited him from engaging certain situations and going to certain situations. And we see it even in Acts when he was prevented from entering the Far East. Here it is certain he is speaking of things pertaining to the natural realm because he's saying, I want to come to you where you are. But we cannot help but take notice of spiritual warfare and the impact it has on furthering the proclamation of the gospel among the known Gentile world. You'll see that even as we look down at verse 31, it's a precursor to what he'll say later as he closes out the entire letter in chapter 16. Where we know that there's an antagonistic force. There are those who are rebellious and disobedient. There are those who are persecuting Paul. There are those who are trying to put a stop to what Paul has taught. We have gone through that in all of Romans. And Paul is saying at times in the natural sense they have prevailed. They have prevailed from me being able to come to you. It's not that I don't want to come. It's not that I'm too busy to make it to you. It's that there are times where there has been a roadblock and stumbling block placed between you and I to which I can't arrive to where you are. Whether that be his imprisonment, whether that be those who uh, who were preemptively struck uh, against and, uh, and Paul had to correct them instead of enjoy the fellowship with them. You see that this takes place, and you'll see that all throughout Paul's ministry. It happens in Galatia. Oh, foolish Galatians. It happens in Corinth. The, the, the conflict with Chloe's people, the super, so-called super apostles showing up. You see, these, you, see, uh, you see the thorn that Paul has in his flesh. You see all these things serve as, as stumbling blocks, and yet Paul uses them as opportunities to be able to, uh, to, to punctuate what is right concerning the church and to be able to establish the means by which he wants to see the church flourish. But yet he was prevented from coming to them. And then he says, but now that's not the case. So he's not just talking about busyness. Because again, we look at the prophecy that is in verse 21 as we look for context pertaining to the statement. But he's saying in verse 23, but now. But now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. And then he goes on. Beyond longing to be with the saints, I want to point something out to you. Beyond longing to be with the saints, 
remote to where Paul was, because that's your heart. That's my heart that we long to be where the with the saints, wherever they may be found. Should they be gathered here? We long to be with them. If we encounter them when we leave this place, we long to be with them, certainly in spirit, certainly natural. And there's nothing wrong with that longing to be with the saints. But he he had the goal. He had the goal to be with the saints in Spain specifically and experience their love for him. It shows you why Christian love for one another is so vital. It literally we have eternal life in Christ, but it certainly bolsters our spirit in Christ. When we are loved by one another, when we have this longing to be with one another and, and the Lord works that out in our heart. But he also has a love for them. You see, very much Paul understood something that so many have failed to understand. That's why the coldness of modern evangelical religion is upon us. Paul wants the saints to love him and he loves the saints, but he loves them in the right way and they love him in the right way. And it's all according to sound doctrine. It's all because he goes there. Even in this text, it's all according to the foundation that they have in Christ Jesus. All of that love that they have for one another is based on that. And the fellowship that they enjoy in company with one another is based on the bond that they have in Christ himself. And so Paul says, I am where I am, but I would love to go all as far as Spain to experience this where it is to be found among the believers. But yet Paul is not a shiftless man. He's not a man who just simply comes and goes and doesn't have a focus to where he ought to be. He has a singular focus. Look at how he ties it in in verse 25. He says, but now, listen, I want to go to Spain, but I'm not dropping everything I'm doing here to get to Spain. Now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints there because there's saints in Jerusalem. So I want to make myself available to the saints in Jerusalem first. Paul is an apostle entrusted with a scope of ministry beyond just the local region. He says, I have to go to Jerusalem first to serve the saints there. But boy, do I want to get to Spain. Do I want to get to where the saints are in the regions to where they are? But I must head to matters uh, and to regions east uh, from where he is. So he recognizes, as I said, the established churches are where they are. And now you're seeing in his ministry, he is trying to strengthen them. He wants to strengthen them. He wants to go to where they are to be a strength to them. So Paul had this goal. He had a singular focus. He did not introduce denominationalism. You don't see it here. In fact, Paul did not pit one group of saints against the other. He says they're a blessing to me in Spain just as they are a blessing to me in Jerusalem. They're a blessing to me in Rome. I'm writing to you in Rome. And then if you just start flipping the pages of your New Testament, you'll see in every region, Paul speaks the same way. There's a corrective element more so in other epistles than than the rest. But there's a love that he has for the churches that are faithful to Christ. I qualify that statement by saying the churches that are faithful to Christ. He certainly loves the ones who are at times unfaithful, but he loves them with a corrective love. A disciplining that they need where he says, I have to call you out on some things because you're not doing as you ought. But you see this love that he has when he recognizes these churches are walking in step. You see it even in Ephesus. 
They're walking in step with what it looks like to be sanctified by the power of God and his salvation in Christ. So he does not pit them against each other. Paul is not dividing them. Uh, He also understood as well the priority of serving those to whom God sent him first. The priority of serving those to whom God sent him first. It's why he says in this particular scheme, in this particular uh, uh, point in the timeline in God's redemptive history, I must go to where the Jews are first. I must go there first, although I am certainly going to the Gentiles. And so you see that. And that is why all the doctrine that we learned from Romans chapter one all the way up to this point is so vital. It's why all the distinctions we made concerning the sons of Israel. It's why all the distinctions we made about who are the true Gentiles, uh, who are the elect Gentiles, who are unbelieving Gentiles, who is true Israel, uh, who's just Israel in name. We went through all those things because Paul is beginning to say, now I'm showing you why I do what I do within the scope of ministry itself. But he has this singular focus. And so he went then first to the saints in Jerusalem to serve them. But here in verse 26, we recognize something. We recognize something. For in verse 26, it says, For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. So what he had begun to do is he had begun to use the fact Not in a manipulative way, but use the fact in a way in which he wants the saints to minister to one another. So he says, I want you to, with your compassion, with your love, with your desire to fellowship in Christ, I want you to bless one another in ways that would be a blessing. And so he's not an insular apostle. He's not insular. And his people were not insular in their affection for those in need. He wanted them to serve those who were in need among the saints. He didn't task them with taking care of the entire populace of the poor among the entire world. That's not what he wanted. In fact, remember it was Jesus the Christ who said, the poor you will always have with you. What he's saying is, I want you to minister to the needs of the saints among you. I want you to do that. You don't see here a calculation. You don't see here a number. What he says is, from your compassion, I want you to minister to one another. And what Paul said is, as an apostle who was traveling in ways that the common folks probably could not travel or were unable or not entrusted to travel in the way that he did, he was tasked with making sure that those resources got to the people who needed them the most. And so he was one who wanted the people to use their affection to minister to the saints around them. Don't use each other, but use the affection that you have for one another to minister to one another. And that works itself out in tangible gifts at times. Now, this is not a ploy to teach people to just give money. They don't know why they're giving, but also just to give it for the purpose of giving it. But it is to be singular and focused with how you minister to needs. And that's what Paul is here expressing to the Romans. But he's saying that that ministry should be on a scale where it's happening in the church at large among the saints. And that's where I say it's not this isn't a social club, as has been the case with modern evangelicals. It's not a Ponzi scheme. It's not a pyramid scheme 
where the elites at the top share their resources with each other and this trickle down false economics may touch the poor. But what Paul is saying is, I want you to give to each other in need wherever you may be found. You're Christians. You will come across the need because the world system hates you. They're persecuting you. And Paul is even saying the world system is making it to where I can't get to you at times. But I see your love you have for one another. I see the ministry that you have toward one another. I see that you're willing to give to one another. I would tell you, even in the place in which we find ourselves, if people started doing this, I'm certain that these places would take umbrage with this. They would be frustrated that how dare this particular so-called church would give to this particular so-called church and minister. They have a whole infrastructure that prevents the very thing that Paul is talking about, ministering to people's needs. Christians will come into need. There are seasons in life when that happens. And what Paul is saying is that I want you to minister to one another's needs in that. I want you to minister to one another's needs. Not one-sided, but we're ministering to each other's needs. And so Paul did that. Paul didn't deride the poor. He didn't mock the poor. But what he said was the poor are among the saints in Jerusalem. They're poor saints, just like there's wealthy saints. And he's not blaming either one for their condition. But what he's saying is minister to one another's needs. Because guess what happens when you minister to someone's needs who who are poor? They become in a position where they can minister to your needs because they have what they need to minister to your needs. So here he's not making a case for a certain type of prosperity gospel. But he's also not making the case for a certain type of manipulation by the poor. What he's saying is you all love Christ. Minister to one another's needs. And so there's an intimacy to the walk that he's requiring among them. But again, he is singular in focus for their love for Christ for one another. He wants them to love Christ because from that you need not hold seminars on these things. If you are teaching people to love and honor Christ according to his word, then the people will begin to respond for their love uh, toward him, toward Christ and toward one another according to his word. And so that was Paul's heart. He did not mock him. He did not curse the poor because to do so would be to curse the Lord according to the wisdom of Proverbs 17:5. What Paul did was instead Paul commended the saints in Macedonia and through several of the Greco-Roman provinces because that would be what we understand Achaia to mean. I know Achaia is attached in certain ancient contexts to Greece, but it would be understanding Greece as many of the provinces that include the Greco-Roman Empire. It would be like saying you live in Los Angeles when you may live in parts outside of Los Angeles that encompass the county. But in that scope, he saw that they demonstrated their love for one another And this is all Paul is saying, that I can see your love for one another because you meet the needs for one another. Even the poor saints among those who are in Jerusalem. It wasn't an an elephant in the room for Paul. He was saying, I want you to minister to one another. I want you to minister to me is what he's saying, because I have to travel to you. I have to make my rounds, so to speak, Paul is saying, in such a way, and Paul is not asking for five-star accommodations. What he's saying is there's a practical cost to engage in spiritual task, and he's saying that that should agree among the saints. But Paul, listen to this, 
He recognized that he was not omnipresent. He wasn't everywhere at once. He could not practically give himself to both the regions of Spain and the provinces to the east throughout the Roman Empire. And where he could not give himself, what he could do is he could encourage the saints to give themselves to those regions and to those people where they found themselves. And he appealed to this. He appealed to this. He didn't guilt them into anything. What Paul did was he appealed to their love for Christ. He said, you love Christ, so let this be an outflowing of your love for Christ. Let this look like your love for Christ and their love for one another. He said, you love one another, so your love for one another should look like this as well. That they could be brought together by contributing to one another's needs. That is essentially what he's saying. And he goes more to it. If you look at uh, verse 27. Yes, they were pleased to do so. And they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. I'll tell you. This did not happen begrudgingly. It didn't happen begrudgingly. And I'll tell you, the issue is in many annals of, of religion. I don't, I don't only want to say it's modern evangelicalism because it's, it's, it's religionism. But we live in an era where the modern evangelical and so many others, he sees his fellow man as a burden. He sees his fellow man as a burden when the need arises. So you have men and women in Christ... Well, not necessarily in Christ, but who, who claim Christ have become suspicious. They become suspicious and transactional toward one another so much that the practical ministry of contributing to the needs of the saints succumbs to every man for himself. And that's what you see in the era in which we live. It's every man for himself. And I suppose that that makes sense in a system that is governed by the world because that's how the world will flourish. And eventually the world will collapse along the same lines. But not in biblical Christianity, because what Paul says, this wasn't begrudging. He says, yes, they were pleased to do so. They were pleased to minister to each other. They were pleased to serve each other's needs. And they are indebted to them. They are not indebted to them because of their condition. I don't want you to mistake what Paul is saying. And I don't want you then to misapply what Paul is saying. He's not saying they're poor. You're indebted to them. Take care of me. Give me everything you have now. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying that their indebtedness is not tied to their condition. It's tied to their position. They're all indebted to one another because they're in Christ. It's not a case of economics. It's not the haves versus the have nots. And yet because I have not, you're indebted to me. And because you have, I'm indebted to you. That's called partiality. James will correct that later. What Paul is saying is, uh, or I'm sorry, corrects it earlier from the vantage point of the text. But he corrects it uh, with respect to the New Testament. What Paul is saying is, is that there is, in fact, this desire to serve one another because of one's position, because of your position. I'm indebted to you to be here and to proclaim the truth of God's word, to minister my gifts. And if you should come across a need and I'm within means to minister to, to that need, I'm indebted. It doesn't mean I'm manipulated. It doesn't mean I'm obligated by force or by sheer necessity uh, in and of itself. But it means that we all stand indebted to serve one another in some way. And the point of that, even as we looked at the gifts section in 14, is that we're ministering to each other's needs, each other's needs. 
Now, how can we do that if we don't know that a need arises? How can we do that if we're unable to practically assess what the needs are? But the point is that we minister to those needs. And I would say the example that we take from that is the lack of the begrudging nature that is found in so many who are not enjoying true fellowship along these lines. Uh, But this was not a begrudging obedience. In fact, even looking at the Old Testament and the Mosaic law uh, that corresponds to so much of what Paul is saying, that was not to be done with a heart of begrudging obedience. Nothing was ever to be done with this, okay, I'll grit my teeth, I'll do it because it says I have to do it, but I don't really want to do it. It really is, I'm doing this because this honors you and it honors the Lord and it honors us all together. And so you have that. But beyond that, he not only says that the people were pleased to contribute to the poor saints in Jerusalem. Well, for one, nobody else was going to care for them. And especially we have to put it in its geographical context as well, that nobody and its historical context, nobody was going to minister to the needs of these poor saints in Jerusalem. They're kicked out of the synagogue. Their lives, if they're kicked out of the synagogue, the synagogue is already joined to Rome. Rome is not going to take care of them. So who's left? It's only those who are among the saints, the household of faith. And I believe that many people don't think this way because they are already syncretized and joined to the world system. So in their minds, they're thinking, why would Christians ever need something When they don't think that the world is that bad to lock the Christians out of that need. I mean, we've been talking about this the whole time. And I would argue, according to what Paul writes to Timothy, it's gotten worse. It's gotten worse. Even the handouts have something attached to them. But it's it's gotten worse in the time in which we live. And many will blame it on economics, inflation. No, all that is their buzzwords for the world system. The world system is antagonistic. It certainly works for those who live according to the world at a high clip. But what Paul is not saying is throw off earning a day's wage. He's not saying throw off those things. He's saying that need and lack has come upon these saints, these particular saints and this particular region. And despite the fact that they have maybe perhaps labor, we don't know what the case is concerning their poverty, but we do know that whatever the case is, That Paul says we must care for them in this expressive way. And he asked the people to do so. But he also deals with the fact that there is a price. There's a price for the spiritual things the Gentiles receive. Now listen, I don't mean it the way that it's practiced today. That price was not determined by the ministers who freely gave to them the spiritual things. So there there was a price for the spiritual things that the Gentiles receive. Paul is an apostle. He doesn't shy away from it here. And when we get into Corinth, you'll see when we look at Corinthians in the, in the time in front of us, as we anticipate, Lord willing, that being the next epistle we're in. He doesn't shy away from it there. What he does is he sets the precedent, the biblical warrant for it, and he sets the parameters surrounding it, all to prevent it from being manipulated. The price was not determined by the ministers who gave freely to them the spiritual things. Look at this. He says, yes, they were pleased to do so in verse 27, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, 
They are indebted to minister to them also in material things. He's not just talking about money. He's talking about the material things that you and I possess. And perhaps we may have those things in excess or availability or not much of it. But we're able to one to another provide those things toward one another. And I'm not only going to make this about us in terms of the modern context, but I believe that we can imitate that type of uh, compassion that they have toward one another. Christians all over the world. But that price, again, it's not determined, but the minister doesn't set his price. The minister doesn't say this is what it costs for me to give you spiritual things. That's not what the word of God teaches. In fact, it talks about the fact that who sets the the price to determine that it would be the same as how we give our offering, that the price is set by the giver. It's not set by the receiver and the giver is giving out of their own heart what they can give, not begrudgingly. There's that word again, not begrudgingly as we have it on our offering uh, template, but not begrudgingly. But we give it joyfully. We give of these things joyfully, whatever those things may be. And so it's not set by the minister. He, he was not engaging in the buying of offices, the buying and selling of, of uh, uh, putting a premium on doctrine, a, a, a fiscal premium on it. He was not putting a fiscal premium on men who bring the truth. He was not creating an economic system by which religion will flourish and there might be some have nots involved. He was not creating that. He's talking about the exchange of love toward one another expressed in material gifts. So therefore, the result is then that those who received in the spiritual things set the terms of what they give in receiving those spiritual things. But the one who's giving doesn't become frustrated, belabored by whatever he or she receives. And I say he or she not in the context, she not in the context of preaching and ministry, but I'm saying in the context of fellowship and giving Toward one another and meeting needs. But Paul saying as a minister. And it is who he was. And Paul was not ashamed to ask. For what he thought was necessary. But he didn't say. Shame on you for not giving more. And he didn't say. You know what? I'm going to manipulate things. So that you do give me more. I'm going to make you show up five times on Sunday. So that we can make you give five more times on a Sunday. Paul doesn't play the economic game with them. What he says is, you love Christ. I've seen it. You're compassionate toward one another. I've seen it. And you know why that's happening to you? Because you're born again. And you know what? Because that's the case, I may need your help to come to you. And you determine what you can do, and that will determine when I can arrive. Paul doesn't say, I'm coming, I'm showing up to the door, and you have to do X, Y, and Z. He doesn't say that to them. And he certainly doesn't set them in that place toward one another because then they would become antagonistic toward one another. But what he what he does is he shows us that the terms are set by those who are receiving the spiritual things. If you're receiving spiritual things, you'll be more inclined to give of those. You'll open up homes. You'll open up whatever it is the Lord has given you. You'll you'll let them be a partaker. I think of our Bible study time We're we're receiving in material things. Uh, by by being in homes and enjoying the fellowship in that context. Those are receiving. That's one example of receiving in spiritual things, the financial element, giving toward one another where there's a need. 
Uh, those are receiving in spiritual things. But it's not like we're going, we set the terms. And you're not, you're not pushing people in a direction that they need, they need to begrudgingly, by, by constraint, make themselves available or else there's consequence. There's no threat here. It's saying you love Christ, you love one another, serve one another in this way. And I'll even go further with you. Paul says you're already serving one another in this way. Continue serving one another in this way. So therefore, from their listen to this, from their love and compassion, what they do is they assess the value of those in ministering to the needs of the saints who labored for them. I believe so many because they have made a mockery of serving Christ in the context of even teaching. I can speak to that because I'm in that context. They sell themselves short no matter how much they gain because you're forcing people to give to you from a standard outside of them valuing what has been received because they know it comes from the Lord. The spiritual things that they receive, the wealth of that and then being able to minister when you turn this into a business and it's a transaction. You have shortchanged the entire process. You've eliminated the love and compassion that fuels it in Christ. So therefore, that is what Paul goes to. He says the value is set by those who minister to the needs of the saints who labor for them. And especially, I would say I'm speaking by way of applying these things, but by the original Context, Paul is saying as an apostle, that's how he accomplished the ministry that he did. And you'll see because in, in chapter 16, he begins to thank all those people who helped him get to where he was in the course of his ministry. But there was nothing wrong with doing so. There was nothing wrong with doing so. I, I think we come to a time in, in, uh, in, in the context of evangelical Christianity where there seems to be a thought process at times that it's wrong to help people and it's wrong to be helped by people who are in need. But it's never wrong. It's never wrong when it comes to a time and a place in which it is the need is is uh, is founded upon uh, by means outside of your control. And the ministry to those needs are met by those who love and honor Christ just as you do. I don't believe that that is something that is a wrong thing to do because we all will find our place in terms of strength and in lack and yet contentment fills our hearts. That's where Paul is going with this. There's nothing wrong. And I believe that it was determined by the saints to do so. Paul is speaking to what they have already determined to do. He's just saying, you're helping one another. I want to come to you. Is it okay with you if I receive the help from you? And so they are already doing this. But they're not under compulsion or manipulation. There's no council. There's no board. There's no one pulling the resources together on their behalf to manipulate the means through which this this is accomplished. I can tell you where that does take place. The other negative side, it's in Corinth. In Corinth, the other side of it takes place and Paul has to come in and say, no, no, no. We're using this in a way to leverage uh, hatred and division amongst one another. We're creating factions based on appearance and what we can amass for ourselves. But Paul had determined to receive what they had given and he had determined to use what they had given to not simply be of spiritual value between each of the saints. He didn't want them only to minister to each other's needs in this context, but for there to be a material benefit for each of the saints. 
for each of the saints. Not just himself. He wanted each of them to, to benefit materially. And after he completed these things, he wanted to go to Spain. He says, therefore, when I have finished with this, because this will come to a conclusion, he's saying. It's not something he planned to manage as an apostle. You remember in the early stages of Acts, at the inception of the church, when the deacons are established. Paul didn't intend to constantly be dealing with matters of, uh, of, uh, of giving and, and, and in such a way that he's driving it and pushing it. It's that he wanted it to take place along the right lines and he wanted the people to benefit. That's it. That's all he wanted. He wanted the people to benefit. So therefore, he says, when I have finished this and I put my seal on this fruit of theirs. You kind of picture an envelope that had the old ancient seals on them. When I put my seal on the on I have put my and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs. I will go on by way of you to Spain. He's essentially saying when I have delivered what is intended to be delivered, I will then continue my journey as planned. Again, singular focus. These are all the matters in between, but here is my focus and here's the outcome after I have accomplished what I've sought to do in the first place. Paul had determined, as I said, to use what they had given to be of spiritual value, but not only spiritual value, but for there to be material benefit between the saints. He wanted the saints to benefit materially. Paul was entrusted with the ministry of an apostle, but he also planned. He also planned as a minister of the gospel. Yes, his plans were often relegated at every point to the will of God. And and they always were. But he expresses at times that he has made a plan and the plan has changed. So Paul, even still, he was one who planned. He was one who he sought from his hand to be a benefit and a blessing to the saints and to make plans to go to where those saints were and to minister to those needs. But you see in Paul something that will be with us even as we wrap up Romans and we get through Corinthians. You see the compassion in Paul. You see his heart for the saints, his love for them. Uh, this this desire to not only bring them together, but for them to benefit from one another in the things that they have partaken of in Christ. He wanted that for them. And for him, when he was done, he would move on because he was entrusted to move on because his reach was to be throughout the known Gentile world. So many argue against apostolic continuation and they act like they're apostles. They move on because they've run the resources dry. That's called manipulation. And they're not apostles. And they're probably not ministers. I mean, we must speak that way because we have to diagnose the negative that's in front of us. But here, Paul, he stays where he is, but he wants to bring the saints together. He wants them to be together. He wants them to partake of spiritual food, but enjoy material benefit with one another. He planned that in them. He planned for that in his own life as he went to go be with the saints. He wanted to see that among them. Paul knew his journey, however, would not be without enemies who opposed him. I wish I could say this was all positive, but uh, in one sense, it does have a positive outcome because we we serve an all-powerful God. But if you look at 
what he says uh, in verse 29. I'll just read down. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I know when I see you, I'll be it'll be a blessing to me. I think any Christian who is in the fellowship with true Christians says that in his heart. I know when I go to fellowship, I'm, I'm going to be I know that when I come here, I'm going to be blessed. I don't say it as an apostle. I say it as a Christian. I know when I come into the company of true Christians, no matter what kind of week I've had, no matter what I've gone through, I'm going to be blessed. I'm going to be just simply if it's by your presence, your, I know I'm going to be blessed. That is his heart. But then he goes to warning again. He goes to warning as we make our way through this. Verse 30. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not urging you by myself, by apostolic authority, but by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the spirit. So what has happened by him in you, in us, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. I love the way he says that to strive together with me. Walk with me, labor with me. Uh, and, and he wants and in this in this context, he's saying, I'm, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to receive your help to come to you. But but he's saying, I want you to strive together with me. Let's continue in this together. But he's saying, but also in your prayers for me, you're praying to God for me as well. So you're not only welcoming me in the abstract context, but you're saying I'm helping you, but I'm also going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for you. I'll tell you, there are there are a few things in this world that are more encouraging than the prayers of the saints, the prayers of the saints. When true saints come to you and say, I, I have been praying for you or I'm praying for you or I will pray for you. I can't think of many other things that are that that are as encouraging. And, and, and I see that in the heart of Paul as he's wrapping up this. You would think he would go to, OK, remember, you know, the doctrines of justification, which we ought to remember the doctrine of sanctification, which we ought to remember eschatology, which we ought to. But what he says is, since you know all that, pray for me. Pray. You are sound in the faith. Use all that to pray for me. And Paul says that. And I'll tell you, I'm looking forward to chapter 16 because Paul goes into all the people who have done that. And you see that he says, strive together with me. Let's do this together, he says, together in the faith, together in the faith. As you pray for me, there was not this cold, lifeless, distant lack of intimacy in the Christian walk among the Christians of that time. And I believe a part of regaining what has been lost as people confess Christianity in a modern era is, is regaining the true sense of fellowship that Christians have toward one another. Uh, and I'm not talking about forced presence. I mean, we have places we have to go. We have we have things that we have to accomplish. But I mean, we're together in this walk and we can express that together as we strive together in the truth. And yet we know each other well enough in the faith to be able to pray for one another. Pray, pray for one another. And I'm, I'm, I'm convicted I have to tell people more than I'm praying for them because I do pray for people. But but it is so encouraging that Paul, he says it even as as an apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ. Pray. For, you're praying for me. You're pray, You're not only walking with me. So many say walk with me, agree with what I'm saying, get in step with what I'm doing. But what Paul is saying is all that being the case, you're, you're praying to God for me. 
You're remembering me. That's evidence. That's the evidence of you being born again. That's evidence of your confession of faith remaining strong, that you're remembering and speaking to God about those who are walking with him. That's evidence. I like to give you along the way in these epistles evidence of your sanctification and your salvation. But then he gives a result. Well, what is the what is to be the body and focus of their particular prayers in that context so that purpose I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. That he wants to be at rest among them. Paul didn't have the mentality, I love Christianity if not for the Christians. Paul says, I love Christianity because of the Christians. They're with Christ. When I'm, when I'm among them, I am at rest. I'm not trying to compare myself to them. I'm not trying to one-up anybody. We're going to see that in Corinth. I have, to, I have to drag you to Corinth. But when we end Romans, you see this love that they have for one another. He's saying, I, I want to find rest. I'm refreshed in your presence. Not because of what you're giving me, but because you love Christ. Because you serve him. Because you're praying for me. Because you walk with him. And then he grants to them what I believe an eternal salutation, an eternal greeting that I believe could be ours in the kingdom because we'll have it eternally there. Look at what he says. Now, the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Now, he says that as we close this out, he says that because of what will then follow as he begins to warn about these hindrances that he brought up even more. uh, And that's enclosed in the greetings that we'll study and the love he expresses toward the saints next time. Let's pray.